My name is Tim Porter. I'm one of the pastors here for Faith Community. Thank you so much for joining here with us on this beautiful spring day. And it actually feels like it. Woohoo! Yeah. Uh, was somebody already clapping about that? Just, wow, you guys are a good crowd. Already clapping about uh, spring. Good. Uh, online, thank you so much for joining us as well. And uh, we've seen some new people who have been around for some time. And... Um, just so good to be back together again. This is one of your first times here. Thank you for investing your morning with us as we gather together today. I am closing out a series called Transformed by Friends today. And in this series, we've been talking about how God's Holy Spirit changes us and transforms us through our friendships. One of our values at Faith Community is that we are inspired to transformation and uh, because of that, we're, we're motivated as a people to hear God's voice as he speaks in Scripture and as we pray and through one another in our friendships, as we encourage one another and challenge one another. And in this series, we started out by talking about the importance of having joy in one another for what God is doing in each other's lives. And then we need to have a kind of commitment to one another, a chesed kind of commitment that we are determined to stick close to one another and care for one another. And then last week, Pastor Tim Prince talked about the importance of telling the truth to one another. And in that sermon, he talked about this phrase called speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. It's from Ephesians chapter 4. That's what he talked on last week. And if you didn't hear that sermon, go listen to it. It was really, really, really good. But in that sermon, he said that speaking the truth in love to one another is not simply about telling each other the truth in a kind way. Now, that's an important thing to do. Don't be a jerk with the truth, right? But sometimes we hear the phrase, and I've heard it used this way as well, and I've used it this way as well, that when I, need to say, when I say I need to speak the truth in love to somebody, what it tends to mean is, you've got a problem, I want to tell you about it, and I want to do it in a way that hopefully you can hear me and not be angry with me. But that's not what Paul is talking about when we say, or when he says, speak the truth in love. And Tim talked last week about this, that we need to, if we're going to experience transformation through our friendships, if we are going to be vessels through whom God seeks to transform our friends, to, we need to learn how to speak the truth in love to one another. We need to learn how to talk about the gospel to one another in personal, specific ways. And so today, what I'd like to do is close out this series is giving some examples from the Bible about how to how to speak the truth and love to one another, how to call one another up to follow Jesus in the ways that the Bible teaches us to do that. And so we're going to jump in today to a letter that Paul wrote, a second letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. And if you didn't bring your Bible or don't have a Bible app with you, it's found on page 966 in the Bibles in front of you. And I highly recommend and ask that you would keep your Bible open uh, as we go through this because I'll be looking at some verses along the way and pointing some things out. And I'd really be helpful, even though we have it on the screens, it'd be really helpful to have it in front of you as well. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21, page 966. This is what Paul writes. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's talking about Jesus there. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we were introduced to the Corinthians last year when we went through 1 Corinthians, which is the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And just by way of review and a way into this passage to set some of the context for what's going on here, is that the the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth that Paul was writing to, the church that he was writing to there, they, they were a combination. This city was a combination of Hollywood, Las Vegas, Nashville, and New York, sort of all thrown together in the ancient world. So they cared a lot about who's in the know. They cared a lot about uh, flashiness. They cared a lot about success. They cared a lot about sexuality and expressing yourself in those types of ways. It's a, a big conglomeration of those cities. But God started to change people's lives as they started to follow Jesus. And the church back then, just like we do today, had a really hard time leaving the values of Corinth behind as they started to follow Jesus. So you remember last year when we were going through this letter that Paul was writing, writing to these first followers of Jesus and calling them back. Calling them back. I, I, know that's, I know that's how you lived when you were outside of Jesus. Now that you have a relationship with Jesus, this is how we live. This is how we live as followers of Jesus. There were divisions in the church. There was abuses of sexuality. There was uh, one-upsmanship going on. There was a lot of pride, not a lot of love. That was what was going on in the church. It was, it was messy, but God was doing something beautiful. Well, some of those problems got resolved. They, the, the Corinthians started to change and follow after what Jesus was calling them to do and what Paul was instructing them. And, but just like with all of us, as soon as we start to see some change in one area of our lives, up comes a new issue, right? Or am I alone in that? Well, with the Corinthians, some of those things started to go away and they started to change. But then what happens is there was these teachers that came in to the church or maybe they even were brought up in the church. We're not sure. But the Apostle Paul sort of sarcastically calls them super apostles. Because these super apostles were eloquent. They seemed to be successful. They had all the markings of the Corinthian culture. All the, 
all the success indicators of what an apostle should be like that Corinthians would like, they seem to be like. They were sort of like what we would call today, maybe you've heard the phrase in some churches, a health, wealth, gospel kind of teachers. Health, wealth, gospel kind of teachers. They talked about how if you have faith in Jesus... Well, you would probably be successful. You wouldn't be that sick that often because Jesus is a healer. And, you know, you should be wealthy and you should be growing in success and those types of things. And they started to look at Paul. And it started to dawn on them. You know, every time we hear a rumor about what, what's going on with Paul, he's always got some kind of problem. He gets beaten a lot. People don't seem to like him when he goes into a city and starts talking about Jesus. And he has to escape. He's been shipwrecked a few times. Well, you would think if he had trust in God, then things would go well for him. He wouldn't get shipwrecked like that. And then he's got that physical problem, you know? He's got this physical problem that Jesus hasn't healed yet. You know, you'd think if he had enough faith, Jesus would heal him. There must be something wrong with him. Side note. Health, wealth, gospel kind of preachers, especially in America, whenever they're... Whenever they're telling you that if you follow Jesus, you'll be successful in the same ways that America defines success, you know you got a problem. Because Jesus' value system is so much different than America's and any other culture, quite frankly. It's a whole different kingdom, a whole different way to live. Now, what Paul's doing in this section is he's in, in a theme of this letter, is he's trying to help the Corinthians understand who they are and what God has done for them so they can understand more about why Paul's ministry looked the way it, it does. Why, why there's weakness, and in weakness there's actually power. Why there's what seems to be like foolishness and non-eloquence, there's actually wisdom there. And what seems to be like failures in Paul's life are actually great successes and victories in Jesus. Because it's a whole different way of thinking. So we're picking up Paul trying to persuade the Corinthians in that, in this way. Paul begins this way. He's trying to describe for them why he is living the way that he's living and why he is sacrificing so much and why he's willing to be bold and go into dangerous situations and be willing to be shipwrecked and experiencing weaknesses and distresses. He says in verse 14, this is why. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what Paul's trying to do is say, yeah, you see the weaknesses, you see the suffering, you see the sacrifices I'm making, you see the, uh, the, the, the apparent failures that seem to be in my life. And you need to understand that what's constraining us and what's controlling us as followers of Jesus is Jesus' love for us. It's a personal love that I know that Jesus loves me to the core of my being and his love controls where I go. It's like, um, it's like a pipe that's taking this huge waterfall and it's constraining the, the water so that it comes out with power. Paul's saying, that's what the love of Jesus is doing in my life. Do you understand what motivates me? I'm willing to go anywhere and I'm willing to talk to anyone. I'm willing to do whatever I have to do. 
because Jesus loves me and I want other people to be introduced to that love. And if I have to be shipwrecked, if I have to endure distresses, if I have to go through suffering, if I have to be beaten for that, so be it. No matter how anybody treats me, I know that I am deeply loved by Jesus. He says, you got to remember that what looks like foolishness to the world is actually God's wisdom. And what looks like weakness to the world is actually God's power. And so Paul goes on a little bit more. Not, now after talking about the, the motivation for his life and for his ministry and what he's seeking to do, he talks about this estimation and how we look at one another and how we look at or how we used to look like look at Jesus. He says from now on because the love of Jesus controls us from now on we we regard no one according to what he says here the flesh. We agree we, we we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What does he mean by that? His meaning is that you and I have estimations of one another. We're constantly profiling one another to see if other people are important. It's usually going to be based on who they know, how much they've made, what kind of job they have, what kind of people they are, what kind of successes that they have. Those are, Paul says here, fleshly ways of looking at other people to see if they're important or not. And Paul says... We don't look at people that way anymore because the love of Jesus compels us. And then he gives an example. He says, you know, we used to, even I, he says, even I used to look at Jesus from this kind of fleshly, worldly point of view. And what he means by that is that when he started to hear rumors and stories about who Jesus is and what he claimed to be and knowing that he suffered and he died on a cross, Paul's like, there is no way, no way Jesus can be the Messiah. Absolutely not. Because Paul was looking at Jesus and the Messiah through the lenses of the Messiah is supposed to be successful and not a failure. He's supposed to be powerful, not weak. He's supposed to be wise, not foolish. And the cross of Jesus being killed by Rome says Jesus is weak. He couldn't overcome him. He was foolish. He let himself get caught in their trap. There's no way he could be the Messiah. And then Jesus met Paul. The once dead, now risen Jesus met Paul. And Paul had to totally flip every category that he had about what the Messiah is supposed to be like. Because now this Jesus, who was, he once viewed as weak, was actually extremely powerful. Who he thought was a failure was actually victorious. In his death, he actually accomplished something that nobody else in human history has ever accomplished. The forgiveness of everyone's sins. In his folly, he was actually deeply wise. So Paul's saying, just like we had to change our view of Jesus, we once looked at him from these worldly standards, from these Corinthian standards, from these Jewish standards. Paul says, just as we had to change that, we have to change our lens in how we evaluate people. 
Corinthians, Paul is saying. Corinthians, what you're doing is you're evaluating me by Corinthian standards. You're not evaluating me by the gospel. Stop it. And it's in the midst of this argument that Paul says something so important about the Corinthians and about you and me as followers of Jesus. He gives them an identity statement. And he reminds them of their shared identity as the people of God, as followers of Jesus. He says this in verse 17, one of the more powerful verses in the Bible. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, take notice, Paul said, take notice, pause and consider this. The new has come. Now, immediately what Paul is talking about in that section is he's saying, look, you've got to understand that your whole way in which you were evaluating people, the whole way in which you're profiling people, the whole way in which you're measuring success, that's, that's done, that's over, that's gone. Why? Because you're a new creation. New creation. What does Paul mean by that? Just a little, like, Bible storyline history lesson. The Bible opens up and human history opens up with God creating everything. Day one, he says, let there be light. And darkness was there and all of a sudden light just shone everywhere. And then God continues to work and he ends his creation on day seven and he rests from all of his created work and everything is good. God looks at everything that he has made and it is good. Sometime after God created, we don't know how long, our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't take God as his word. They were deceived and they rebelled. They said, yeah, I know God, you, you said it's not good for me and it's dangerous for us to eat from the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we know better, thank you very much. And they did what they wanted to do. And that day, that day, all of the goodness of creation was corrupted. From humanity to animals to plant life to seasons and environments to all of the created world. Because our relationship with God was completely broken that day. And you and I have been born into those consequences ever since. And we've added to them in our rebellion against God. But that very day that our first parents rebelled, God had a plan in mind to restore and redeem and put everything back right again. And God's been about it ever since that day. And if you read on in what's called the Old Testament, this is the, the books of the Bible that are before Jesus' arrival. Promises start to emerge. Strong, big, cosmological promises. That is, promises about the whole created order being remade. Isaiah 45, God says to the people of Israel, look, behold, I'm going to remake everything. We're going to make a whole new heavens and earth. I'm going to take this heavens and earth and I'm going to reshape it completely. I'm going to make it good again. And there's never going to be any weeping or, or any kind of sin on that world ever again. And then the Bible ends with 
Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible. The Bible ends with a picture of God completing all the work that he said that he was going to do in redeeming us. There's this announcement. New heavens and new earth are arriving. And God's saying, behold, I make all things new. See, the great promises of the Bible aren't just simply, if you follow Jesus and you die, you'll go to heaven. That's great. But God offers us something far bigger. When Jesus returns, the resurrected Jesus returns, everything gets put back right. That's what we celebrate next week. Now that's the theme of new creation in the Bible. And now though, in this section, the Apostle Paul says to these first followers of Jesus, if you are in Christ, notice this, if you are in Christ, you as an individual are a new creation. He takes this grand theme, this grand promise of everything being remade and says, do you understand? That's you. As a follower of Jesus, that's you. You are a brand new piece of handiwork in God's hands. You're a new creation. Why would Paul say that? A chapter before this one, the Apostle Paul talks about how what happens when we say yes to Jesus. Now, you and I, we come to Jesus and say yes to Jesus in various ways. Various ways. Some, some grow up here at Faith Community and they go through early childhood and life-shaping and Awana and they won't remember a day when they didn't know something about Jesus. And it just sort of happens, it would seem, naturally. Sort of my experience as a follower of Jesus. I grew up in the church and just something that happened naturally. I can't remember a day when I wasn't trusting in Jesus. Others come to Jesus kicking and screaming. Others come to Jesus because they grew up in these things and then they leave them and then they come back and it all starts to click and they're changed. Others need to really investigate and consider who is this Jesus? What did he do? And what does that really mean for me? It's one of the reasons why we have Christianity Explored and you've got questions about Jesus and you'd like a safe place with good food and child care to investigate those questions, sign up for Christianity Explored. Join me Thursday, April 28th. But no matter how we, no matter how we come to say yes to Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus, this is one thing that is common for everyone who is a follower of Jesus. God did something in you so that you moved from Jesus really doesn't matter that much and might be irrelevant to my Lord and my God. What had happened? Paul tells us about it in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. God, who shone light, out of the dark, shone light into the darkness. What does that remind you of? What passage of scripture does that remind you of? What day of creation does it remind you of? Day one, thank you. Yes, day one. Just like God said, let there be light into the abyss of darkness. Before God created light, there was only darkness. 
And now what Paul says is at the moment that God did that, he, when you turned it, whatever it was like, when you turned from saying, Jesus might be irrelevant, I don't know who he is, and then all of a sudden you say, my Lord and my God. The reason why you were able to do that is because God spoke light into the deepest abyss of the darkness of your heart. At your core, as a follower of Jesus, at your core, there's light. The light of the beauty and the awesomeness and the love and the goodness of Jesus. And nothing, no darkness will overcome that light. At your core, you're a new creation. Do you believe that about yourself? Now in this section, again, what Paul is doing here is he's sharing, he's talking about their shared identity as followers of Jesus. We are, as followers of Jesus, we're, we're a new creation. We're a brand new creation. And what that means is not only do we have something new in us in our relationship to Jesus and our estimation of him, it changes all parts of our lives. So in this section, verse 14, being a new creation gives us a new motivation. A new motivation for living. Why do we get up in the morning? Jesus' love compels me to get up in the morning. Do you get up in the morning believing? I'm deeply, dearly, personally, amazingly, astonishingly loved by Jesus. Does Jesus' love compel you and constrain you? We have a new perspective, Paul says. We don't, we don't look at people anymore the way America looks at people or tells us to look at people about whether or not people are respectable or irrespectable. No, no, no. We don't look at that way anymore. It's America's values. People aren't that successful or connected to us. We can sort of dismiss them and go on our way. Paul says, I can't do that. The new creation can't do that. Why? Because every human being, Paul says, every human being is someone for whom Jesus died. Jesus' death, sufficient for the forgiveness of all the sins of all people everywhere. You and I, when we have an argument with someone we're in an argument with someone for whom Jesus died. Does that shape how you argue? When we're tempted to not forgive someone because of the wrongs that they've committed against us, and it can be very hard depending on the size of the wrongs, we're tempted to not forgive someone for whom Jesus died. It gives us a whole new perspective. We are learning now. What being a new creation is, is learning now in this world until, the, until Jesus returns. We're learning now to live the way we will live when Jesus returns. So this is the power of what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to remind, trying to remind the Corinthians and remind you and me 
This is our shared identity. This is what we're living into. This is what God has done. And to take on that identity and to live it out. Question. Please raise your hand or not to this one. How many of you are followers of Jesus? Raise your hand if you're a follower of Jesus. Okay. Beautiful. Great. Now, raise your hand if you, woke, if you lived this week believing and knowing that you're a new creation in Christ. Okay. A few of us. Far less. This is why it's important to be friends and to have friends who remind us of our shared identity in Jesus and to call us up to following after him because we so easily forget. And it's really, at times, really hard to believe. I'm a new creation. Look at all my failures. Look at all my brokenness. Look at all my sins. And those are just the ones that I do externally. You would be shocked about my thought life. Look at all that. How can you believe? How can you say I'm a new creation? Because God says it. One of the important things about being transformed and how the Holy Spirit works through us as friends in Jesus is that He takes. Our words, when we remind one another of who we are and what God has done for us and call one another to live in that kind of way, he speaks. And we have more grounds and more availability for transformation. A lot of times as Christians, we are, our speech is talking about what is right to do and what is wrong to do which is important. And Paul's trying to teach us, and the Bible's trying to teach us, there's another way to do that, which is reminding one another who we are and therefore living into it. Why does this matter? It matters, important, it matters in, in, in a huge way it's because you and I are made by God in his image and we are made to live out an identity. Now I'm grateful. Our culture is talking a lot about identity and identity formation right now. And I'm so grateful for that because it gives us a chance as Christians to speak into that, but also see the importance of identity and identity formation. As human beings, we are continually asking and answering at least four questions about ourselves. And we're listening for other people's answer for these questions. The first one is, first question is, what do I live for? Like, what do I really live for? Second question is, who am I? Who am I really at my core? Who's that, who's that unchangeable person that's always there in every conversation or every relationship or every circumstance? Who am I? Why am I valuable? What makes me valuable? And lastly, who says? Who gets to say who I am? Who gets to say why I'm valuable? And who gets to say why I should do what I do? Those are identity questions. Core identity questions. And in the church, we've not talked well about those things. And they're fundamental. 
So after Easter, the series right after Easter is about, we're calling it the stories we tell. And we're talking about how we, we want to learn together about how we can help one another shape, be, be shaped in our identity of who God is and how he made us so that we can live that out. See, this is the reality. Every culture, every culture is doing identity formation in us and on us. But it never, our culture never asks us permission to do that. If you're from an Asian culture, more of a traditional culture, the who says, who gets to tell me who I am and why I'm valuable, typically that's going to be the family. The family tells you your role, what your purpose is, and who you are and why you're valuable. And that can be crushing in a shame-honor culture. In America and in the West, it's a little bit different. Family doesn't get to tell you who you are and why you're valuable. Not really. You do. You tell you who you are, why you're valuable, and everybody else has to adapt to it. Both are equally crushing. I mean, this is one of the shifts that our culture has made. Just think about it. Who determines, who determines your sexual identity? You do. What are your desires? And follow. Everybody else has to adapt. But what the Bible's doing and what God is doing is God is saying, I've made you for a purpose and I know all about you. I know who you really are and I know why you are so valuable. And we can be vessels in one another's transformation by reminding one another about what God says about us. The Bible talks this way a lot and gives some examples. Let me just give a few of them. This is from, you write down the references and then you can go back to them and read them later on because I get to finish up my time pretty quickly here. But just write down the references. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Hopefully you can hear the power of some of these identity statements and shared identity. This is how we live. If this is who God is and what he's done for us, this is how we live. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Hear that? In Christ, you're God's chosen ones. You're holy. You are deeply, profoundly loved by the king of the universe. Put on then compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility and meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. When we're tempted to withhold forgiveness from somebody, we've got to remember who we are as a people. We are a forgiven people who are a forgiving people. Reminding one another of this. That's what Paul's doing. Ephesians 5, 7 and 8. Therefore, do not become partners with them. He's talking about just living according to the world's standards and not according to God's and just doing what other people around us in our communities are doing. No, no, don't become like them and how they behave. Why, 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 why? For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We get up in the morning, we're thinking, we're children of light. 
You know, walk as if I am the light because the Lord's light is in me. It's my way of life. Two, or 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Paul, this, is, this is how Paul is seeking to ground the Corinthians in their identity in Jesus, their shared identity, so that they will leave the sexuality and the sexual practices of the Corinthians behind and follow Jesus. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. This is good news. Your sexuality doesn't even belong to you. You don't have to figure it out. God has already said what your sexuality is. And you use it for him. But you were bought with a price. Your body isn't yours anymore. It belongs to him. So glorify God in your body. This man named St. Augustine, some of you may have heard of him, where before he followed Jesus, he was living like really, 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 really badly. All kinds of sexual escapades with all kinds of women. And after he started following Jesus, he went to a party and there was a woman there who he used to spend a lot of time with and have a lot of hookups with. She was trying to get his attention, didn't know that something had changed. And eventually, and sort of Augustine was ignoring her. And eventually she sort of got really bold and she went up to Augustine, hey, Augustine, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And Augustine said, yeah, you don't understand though, it's not me anymore. I belong to somebody else. My body's not mine anymore. It's Jesus's. 1994, my wife and I were newly married. And I think, I didn't fact check this, Deej, I'm sorry. I should have done that. But I think this is the first movie that we saw together as newlyweds. And we went to see The Lion King. The 1994 version, when it was just cartoons. And hopefully you remember the story of the Lion King. I mean, terrible worldview, you know, um, uh, circle of life, you die, something eats you, and then, yeah, that's a terrible view. But it's a great story. Mufasa's the king of the pride. He has a son named Simba, and he holds up Simba, and all the pride bows down and knows that this is the real heir, the real heir to the throne. Well, we know that Scar, which is uh, Mufasa's Brother is jealous of Simba, and so he orchestrates a plan to get Mufasa killed, and he frames, he frames Simba and puts all kinds of shame all over Simba's life. Simba runs away from the shame, believing that it's because of him that his father died and that everybody hates him and despises him. So he runs away, and he goes to hang out with a warthog and a meerkat. And he starts to live into that identity, that shared identity of what is it like? Hakuna Matata. This is our shared identity now. Hakuna Matata. We just eat bugs. Squishy bugs. Juicy bugs. But lions are made for meat. Just like humans. Sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Please forgive me, my vegetarian brothers and sisters. I just had to say that. Which wasn't good. But he's living as a warthog and a meerkat. Well, things back in the pride are just going terrible. And so Nala, his best friend and love interest, comes to find him. 
and persuade him to come back. And then you've got this great song, can you feel the love tonight, you know. But even Nala can't persuade him to go back. Even her love can't persuade him to fully go back. He's too ashamed. And then one night, Simba gets a vision of Mufasa, his father. His father comes to him and says, remember who you are. You're a lion. You're not a bug-eating warthog. You're a lion. You're my son. You're the heir. And everything starts to change. And I remember when I first saw that scene, I'm like, I need somebody else to speak that kind of truth into my life. And this isn't just like some kind of Disney make-believe kind of deal. Jesus, when he was coming up out of the waters of baptism, heard a voice from heaven, spoke to him. His father said to him, you are my son. You're my beloved. In you I am well pleased. And that identity charted out the mission of Jesus for the rest of his life. Jesus needed to hear those kinds of words. Should we think we're any different? The Bible teaches us how to talk to one another. Remind one another of who we are. And call one another up. Speaking the truth in love. It's a way of transformation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your goodness. Thank you for your son that he who knew no sin, perfect, you treated him as if he was sinful on our behalf that though we are sinful, we would be called your righteousness. Thank you that no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us in all the brokenness in our lives, that you make that brokenness beautiful. The brokenness doesn't stop you. It's where you start with your creative work. Would you remind us of who we are because of who you are? Would you remind us of whose we are because of who you are? And would you teach us as a people, as a church, to point one another back to who we are? Transform us through our friendships. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're in the room, would you please stand as we're going to sing together online? Join us as well.